Solomon starts out well, but gets lost on the way. Our good days and our bad days are actually the same to God, and a fool is like a popping campfire. All this and more as we continue our year with Solomon. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What Podcast. Okay, turn your Bibles over to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We are, um, for those that are new, we're, we're in the middle of a year, or closing out a year, a uh, year with Solomon, and we've been looking at wisdom literature in the Bible. If you remember, the Bible is not arranged chronologically, it is arranged by genre. And so, wisdom literature is the middle part of the Old Testament. This is, um, this is the book of Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. This is um, a lot of, a, a lot of uh, Hebrew wisdom literature is similar to Egyptian wisdom literature, and so there's a lot of nuances. And so this morning... We are going to talk about good days and bad days. How do we face these in a godly way? Because, let's be honest, we all have good days and we all have bad days. And um, sometimes one of those outnumber the others. And so we're going to look at this, uh, this idea. So the... The teacher is going to go through and he's going to show us uh, different ways to look at life. He's going to, he's going to say, I've, I have, picture this in your mind. So you have Solomon. Um, Ecclesiastes is believed to have been written in uh, the later years of his life. And so he has, uh, he starts out strong. God asks him, what do you want above everything else? And he says, I want a Shema Leib. I want my father's heart. I want a heart that listens and desires you. And then he says, um, God tells him, as long as you seek me, you will always have this relationship with me. And so Solomon begins to uh, find out that he has, God has opened up truth to him in ways that no one else has since and no one ever will. Um, and so he begins to prosper, uh, not just because God gives him favor, but because he has um, an understanding about how things work, right? You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't know how to put it into practice, you're just a really highly educated idiot. Uh, and so Solomon had the ability not just to know things and understand things, but also to put them into practical action. And so he prospered in every way. Um, but along the way, he began to um, focus on uh, miss the forest for the trees. So last week we looked at chapter 6. And um, at the end of chapter 6, the teacher pointed out, Solomon speaking you know, in the voice of the teacher, he pointed out that um, life is futile. And um, his lessons culminated by this illustration of the contrast between God's greatness and our significance. We looked at the idea of the person who chases their shadow. That no matter how quickly you run, no matter how creative you might be, you're never going to catch it. And the shadow always is cast on the opposite side of the light. Right? If we are pursuing God who is light, James chapter 1 tells us that he's the father of light and the, and the giver of all good things. That if we chase him, there are no shadows. But if we turn our backs to him, we will always be chasing an illusion of what we think that we should be. And so the teacher says that this type of a life, chasing our shadow, is empty. It, end, it ends up frustrating us, and there's no benefit to it. So he's going to transition into, into chapter 7. He's going to talk about the value of practical wisdom and um, what it looks like to, to see things correctly. So in these first 12 verses, um, the teacher, he's going to begin with an observation, and then he's going to go through and he's going to talk about, uh, he's going to use these different proverbs to illustrate his point. 
So let's read the first 12 verses. It says this. It says, A good name is better than good oil, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every person, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise person than for one to listen to the song of fools. For if the crackling of thorns, thorn bushes under a pot, for as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise person look foolish, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than arrogance of spirit. Do not be eager in your spirit to be angry, for anger resides in the heart of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the, adva- but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom keeps its possessors alive. Okay, the first thing he talks about here is a good name is better than good oil. Um, if you remember back whenever we were talking through Proverbs, uh, we learned that oil and perfumes in this day and age is, uh, were invaluable. These people didn't have modern hygiene practices. They, so to cover up their own bodily odor, they would cover themselves in, in perfumes and oils. People would oil their hair, and they would oil their beards, and they would cover their skin with oil. Um, and it was a way for them to, uh, to mask just the natural part of being a, a human being in that part of the world. And so he says this, uh, this, so all through Scripture, oil is seen as an incredibly valuable thing, not just because it's something to possess. We, we wear perfumes and colognes and, and smelly things um, just out of convenience because we want to smell nice. But for them, it was a necessity. And um, there were all different ranges of what this looked like. So we see um, basic oils being used for um, spicing wine and for doing different household things. But then also, on the other end of the spectrum, in John chapter 12, we see Mary anointing Jesus' feet with this special perfume, this oil named nard, called nard. And it's worth, the one vial is worth an entire year's wages. So we're talking, in our world, about fifty to $60,000 for this one piece of oil, this one jar of oil. And the idea is that a good name, a reputation, a godly reputation, someone who is known for being a godly person, is to be valued more than anything else. This precious thing. Remember back in chapter 6 when we looked at um, the idea of what we can invest our life in. God gave us work to be a, a gift and something that we can enjoy and that we can, as we, as we uh, apply ourselves, that labor turns into something sweet because God introduces himself to us through our work. It's a pre-sin institution. By the same way, um, we need to remember that how the way that we live our lives is important. Our reputation is important. There's a false doctrine that says that we Christians have to be perfect, that we have to always keep it together, that we have to not mess up. We can't, don't you dare say that, don't you dare post that, don't you dare do these things because um, God's watching and He's going to punish you. But the reality is that we don't do certain things not because we're better than anybody else, but because we understand that sinful lifestyles are destructive and we want to be a testimony to people. So he says that the, uh, a good name is to be more prized than, than good oil. He talks about this, he uses this language about dying and how 
uh, one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Um, there, a lot of these, these Proverbs are similar, and they all have this common theme. The idea of reminding ourselves of, our, of how small we are, number one, but also reminding ourselves of our eternal identity. The truth here is that um, I, don't, I have never met anybody that enjoys funerals. I haven't. Especially if you are going to the funeral of someone that you care about, someone that you love dearly, um, it is gut-wrenching. But here he says that it's better to be in the house of mourning than, to, than the day of one's birth. The idea is that when we think of birth, we think of new life and opportunity and all these different things that could come about. And he says that, no, in comparison to a house of mourning, a house that is, that is plagued by death and a house that, is, that has been uh, enriched by the birth of a child, the house of death is actually to be preferred. Why is that? Because it's in the house of death that we find who truly loves us. We truly begin to see things as they truly are from an eternal perspective. That, the, that the, the house of death, the house of mourning, recognizes things for truly as they are. See, we have a, um, a natural uh, inclination. We're naturally drawn to pleasure as human beings. And the reason why that we're drawn to pleasure is because of our own broken sinfulness. And, and pleasure is one of those things that helps us mask our insecurity. And so we try to find our comfort in pleasure. We try to find our comfort in doing things that take our mind off of our brokenness. What he's saying here is that to, to see things circumspectly, to see things correctly, is to see, th- see things in a way that actually will help us thrive and grow. Because one of the principles of Scripture is that if we are not fighting for our own hearts, if we're not keeping our hearts with all diligence, we will naturally float down river. There is a very real deception in our generation that has been for, for many years that somehow if I just, you know, I'm good with God, I've, I've, I've said the prayer, I've gotten baptized, so I'm good, that somehow this casual lifestyle is going to be productive and it's going to be healthy. But that's not true. Because life is like trying to swim up river. And it's the constant struggle that we move forward because we are constantly under opposition as God's children. Jesus said, do not marvel that the world hates you. Don't marvel that there's opposition. Don't be amazed and surprised when people say things that are bad about you, they, that they manipulate you, that they speak evil of you and make lies up about you. Don't be surprised about these things because they did the same thing to the prophets, they did the same thing to me, Jesus, and they're going to do the same thing to you. This is par for the course. And so as we're swimming upstream, guess what? When we stop paddling, we don't just stay still, we begin to drift. And so he's saying to be in the house of mourning is a reminder of our mortality. It's a sober reminder that we are naturally broken, that we naturally need help. And so, yes, there is, there is life and there is joy and there is, there is fun that comes from a child. But the reality is that that cannot compare, that, cannot, that pales in comparison to the comparison of our relationship with God and what He has done for us and what He is doing in us. That's why it just reminds me of what James says, that how do we resist the devil? Um, by drawing near to God and Him drawing near to us. And He says, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and then He will lift you up.
the idea that mourning is actually the gateway to godliness. He says, sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. See, true happiness comes from being submitted to God. In, uh, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, you know, blessed are the brokenhearted, for they will be comforted. The, the deception from the enemy is that, you know, if, if, if you go towards this sorrow, if you lean into this reality about who you are, that God is not going to meet you there. That God doesn't care about you in your brokenness. He basically has just created a miserable life for you and wants you to wallow in it for the rest of your life. But that's not true. Because as we've seen in Proverbs and as we've seen in, in Ecclesiastes, that God is not content to let us wallow in our hardship. Because He is a good Father. He is one who always takes care of His children, and He will give us the best for us. And that's not just this, this distant idea that some, somehow, someday, I'm going to be taken care of when all this is over. Eternity starts right now where we are. And so He says um, that, that uh, a person who is sad in heart might be happy. Um, it reminds me of this true sor- sorrow is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where he says that we've been saved by grace through faith. The reminder of our brokenness actually amplifies our understanding of grace. Because we honestly, we acknowledge in our comfortable South Tulsa um, white-collar world, we, we acknowledge that we're sinners, but when it comes to needing God's grace, if we're really honest, we don't believe that we need His grace. Because we're pretty good people, right? How can we shake ourselves from that, that lethargy? How can we shake ourselves from that mindset that I'm good, God, everything's great, thanks for all these blessings? The way that we do that is we begin to see things as they truly are. That as the Master reveals just the crap in our lives, we begin to realize that we do need Him. He says, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. In other words, wisdom comes from this perspective. But the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Again, we're back to this idea that we, we try to mask our, our reality by, by pleasure. Um, he says, it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise person. Because um, think about this. Their rebuke comes from a correct perspective of God and the human condition. That if you listen to a wise person, it's not because they have this abundance of knowledge because they've studied a book. If you, if you meet someone that you can tell that they walk with Jesus, the thing that makes them attractive is not that they have a head full of knowledge that can give you an answer. They're not like Google. The reason a person can speak with authority and wisdom is because they have walked dangerous paths themselves and they have the scars to prove it. The wisest people in the world are those who have made terrible mistakes and that they have humbled themselves in the sight of God And he then has raised them up, James chapter 4. He he compares the the laughter of of, uh, a fool to the crackling of thorn bushes in a a fire. Uh, If you've been around a campfire at any length of time, you know what this is. is You're sitting there, we're in fire pit season, um, the best season in the the year, in my opinion. But um, you're sitting there and you throw a log on and you start to see those sparks come out of the fire and things start to pop, right? How long do those sparks stay in the air? Not long at all. They're there for a second and then they're gone. They're bright, they're hot, and then they're gone. 
The idea here is that foolish living is something that, yes, it can get our attention, but it is, it is not something that is going to bring long-term satisfaction. He says, For the oppression uh, um, makes a wise person look foolish, and a bribe corrupts the heart. This is interesting here, because the word oppression in Hebrew actually can be translated as extortion. The meaning of, of this verse is something different than what we might assume. Um, the meaning of the word for oppression or extortion, he's talking about a person who has uh, achieved something by deceit. The second part of this proverb where he says, a bribe corrupts the heart, um, he's talking about uh, how it changes. The, the word corrupts actually means in Hebrew, it changes our nature. This word actually means to cause, to vanish, to blot out, or to do away with. The meaning here is that a wise person may dedicate themselves to a righteous living only to throw away or to blot out their good reputation with compromise. The idea, we, we see these stories all the time. Somebody who is, who is assumed to be a godly person, they have great teaching. Ravi Zacharias is a great example. Someone who spends their whole life dedicated to the Word, teaching the Word, has a great following, has a great reputation, and along the way, they begin to drift. And their faith is an intellectual one, and, and they leave their, their actual personhood behind. He says that this is something that um, corrupts us. It blots out our reputation. Um, he says, patience of spirit is better than arrogance. Um, one of the things I want you to think about is that patience is more than just a virtue. It's a testimony of a heart that's at peace with God. Um, there is a, um, there's a concept. I've talked to some of you about this before. There's a concept that I've read about that is uh, it's interesting. You have essentially two different options. You have uh, a heart that is bent towards war. This is a heart of war. And then on this side, you have a heart that is set to peace. And the key distinction between the two is that a heart of war and a heart of peace, peace both have one theme in common. And that is how that person sees themselves. A heart that's at war is a heart that is insecure. This is a heart that is built on self-preservation, um, our own intelligence and understanding, our own wisdom and knowledge. But a heart that's at peace is innately secure because the heart that's at peace has put its trust in something other than self. Okay, This is where we live, right here. This is a selfish heart. Over here, this is a selfless heart. The idea is that this heart, the master is me, and this heart, the master is the master himself. We talked about this word last week, the Greek word chorios which is always translated most of the time as Lord, which is just a title that we attach to Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus Christ. That's his last name. That's what we assume. It's not true. It's just his title. Kurios is often translated Lord, but we can't forget its other definition, which is master. It can be translated both ways. And so the key difference here is that a person who is who their heart is set at war. This is a person who's easily agitated. This is someone who, with a quick temper, they've got a short fuse. They are looking for a fight. They don't, you don't have to spend a whole lot of energy to rile them up. Their insecurity 
makes them defensive, and so they are ready to go throw, throw their, their hands around at the drop of a hat. But the person who is at peace, who understands that their security doesn't lie in who they are as a person, but rather who they serve and who they represent, this person is naturally a person of peace. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Against, there, against these there is no law. But the fruit of the flesh is drunkenness, revelries, a selfish ambition. This is the decision that we have. So he's saying that do not be eager. He says patience of spirit is better than arrogance. And then he goes on, he says, do not be eager in your spirit to be angry, for angry does not reside, anger resides in the heart of fools. A heart that's at war. For a heart that's at war, this is, this is like being a hammer always looking for a nail. Innately insecure and unstable in all their ways. This is the double-minded man. Um, he goes on in verse 10 to talk about the good old days. Uh, in one translation it says, He who loved... Let's see. 10. He says, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? This is the Uncle Rico syndrome, right? He is saying, Man... Back in high school, man, back in those days, things were so much better. Man, back when we uh, were in college or back when, man, when the kids were, were little. Man, Uncle Enrico syndrome, it can hit us at any point in our lives. There are people in their 20s and 30s who are living 20 years ago, and there are people in their 50s and 60s living 40 years ago. We see this in uh, people who are not satisfied with their position where they are. They chase jobs. They bounce around looking for something to give them value. They're not content where they are. There's got to be something more. We're missing something. But then we also see that in the 60-year-old, the 70-year-old, that is, um, they pass over their adult children like they don't even exist, and their grandbabies are their obsession. That they miss the responsibility to lead other people that are right behind them, and they go for what is convenient, these little, these little ones, that don't have any malice or, or favoritism yet. That comes in time. But the reality is that these are people who are, who are distracted. The good old days, the, things that, the way that things used to be. Man, they were so good back then, but we forget how, how conveniently, how difficult the good old days were, and that they weren't as good as we think they were. I'm, I'm amazed at how relevant that is, especially the older I get. He goes on in verses 11 and 12, and he says, Wisdom along with an inheritance is good, for wisdom is protection. Um, you know, this is, this is interesting because uh, we chase money for protection. We do, especially when we're young. Money means security. If I have money, I can meet my deductible for my medical bills because I'm terrified I'm going to get sick, or I'm terrified I'm gonna, something's going to happen to me. If I have money, then I can, then I can get a, a house, and if I get a house, then I'm going to be satisfied. If I have money, then I'm going to be able to retire because I'm afraid that nobody's going to take care of me when I'm older. See, all of these things live contrary to Scripture. When Jesus says in Matthew 6, I know that you need these things, I'll take care of you, he wasn't kidding. He was being serious. The idea that, uh, that money is protection is a very real thing. It's a deception. So, but he says wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good. He's not talking just about money. He's talking about an identity, a heritage of faith. Wisdom is something that actually will protect us. It's something that um, 
that highlights dangers along the way and things that are coming up and, and obstacles and um, things to avoid, but it also provides us with vision. Wisdom provides us with vision to know where we need to go next. If you want to know what direction you need to take your family with your children and with your marriage, with your relationship with each other and your relationship with others, you cannot do that without wisdom. It's impossible because the wisdom of man is, is foolishness compared to godly wisdom. You can build the entire, the, the perfect life that you, as you define it around you with relationships and with stuff and with position. But at the end of the day, you still have a limited perspective. Your, your idea of building a perfect life compared to God's is like a child building a sofa fort in the living room. You're really excited about what you've made. How many of you have done that when you were little, right? And it works the best if you have a love seat that has the cushions that come around the armrest because you could turn them like this and it makes a little doorway inside, right? Put the blanket over the top. This is the coolest thing ever, right? This is what our constructed lives look like compared to what God has for us. We come to our parents like, oh, look what I did. Look what I did. This is awesome. This is so great. Meanwhile, you're standing in the living room of an incredibly beautiful home and you're like, forget all of this. Look at what I did. And your parents are like, that's great, honey. Oh, that's so good. Great job. They walk in confidence that you are protected. You are taken care of. That's how God sees our prizes that we make for him. Thinking that we're, we're creating security for ourselves. Okay, so he moves on. These next, these next couple of verses talk about um, God and who he is. Remember, we've got this theme going. Since chapter 6, we've got this idea that... that God is um, omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He is omnificent. Remember, we learned that word a couple of weeks ago, omnificent. That means that God has the ability to create everything, to sustain everything, to regenerate everything. All power, omnipotence, and all authority comes through His omnificence. That he is a perpetual regenerator. That he is the one that sustains all things. That by him, through him, and from him, all things are sustained. Because to disconnect ourselves from him is to disconnect ourselves from everything that's good. There is no capacity within us. And if it wasn't for his omnificence, we would not be able to survive. We wouldn't even have the opportunity for grace if it wasn't for this part of his nature. So, look at verse 13 and 14. He says, Consider the work of God, for who is, who is able to straighten what he has bent? On the day of prosperity, be happy, but on the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that a person will not discover anything that will come after him. Good days and bad days. So consider this. This language that he uses about making crooked things straight, that is other places in the Bible as well. And those, those passages of Scripture are talking about a specific person. Who is that person? Jesus. Jesus in context. Those are the two answers we're always looking for. Jesus. He says this in Isaiah 42, in Isaiah 45, and in Luke 3, 5, and 6. In Luke 3, 5, and 6 is where John the Baptist, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they say, Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you, are you the Messiah? And he says, no, I'm the one that has been called to make the way straight for the Lord. 
He's talking about Jesus. He says here in, in verse 13, who's able to straighten what he has bent? This is a phrase that's used to describe what Jesus is going to do for us. Um, but good days and bad days, look at this. In verse 14, on the day of prosperity, be happy. But on the day of adversity, consider this. What do we do on bad days? That God has made the one as well as the other, so that a person will not discover anything that will come after him. Okay, so let's, let's break this apart for a second. What do we do with good days? He says, be happy. Celebrate what God's doing. You may be in a season of plenty right now. You may be in a season where you're, you're, you are just, it's incredible. I was going back and reading my journals from three years ago when I was first submitting to ministry. And I was on top of the world. God was, I was devouring his word. I was excited about what was ahead of me. I was excited about submitting to the ministry and being the young adult pastor here at Evergreen to be able to invest myself in you and in our reach community. That was exciting for me. And I have this thing where I, where I write in my journal, as I'm asking God questions, he will answer me. And I will realize, oh, wow, that's what, he would, that's, that's what I need to know. And so I've begun the, the, the discipline in, in the book of Psalms. There's a word that's used quite often. It's the word selah. Um, and selah, if you know anything about music, is a hard rest. It is literally means that the poet stepped away from his, his parchment and he went and did something else to reflect and then they came back with a new perspective. And so whenever I'm journaling and I'm asking the Lord questions, I'm writing out my prayers to him, if I get an answer in that moment, I'll finish the question, but the answer's already in my head, so I will write Selah and then I will write the answer and then I will write Selah and ask another question. It doesn't happen every time, but it's pretty cool to go back and be able to read my journals and see this conversation with God. And I was talking to him and I was excited about what was coming and, and um, this is what he said to me three years ago in early October as he says enjoy the season of harvest soak it up but know that the work is coming we have a responsibility to worship and to praise God in the good season to remember who takes care of us and that can be really difficult but how do we do that by what he talked about earlier, about remembering, putting ourselves intentionally in situations to where we are reminded about what God is doing for us. But then he says, what do we do with bad days? He says, remember this on the bad days, that God has given you the good days and the bad days, and they are no different. Each one has this one thing in common, that we could discover who God is. The idea is that bad days and good days have the same purpose to remind us of what God has done and is doing in our lives. So we prefer the good days because they make us feel good. Why? Because they appease this need within us, this knowledge that we are broken. But the bad days, they offer the same hope. That's a question I want you to ask yourselves in your, in your families. Whenever you're going through a difficult season, where is the hope? Whether it is a good day or a bad day, where is the hope? If I read God's word and it's convicting to me, where is the hope? If I read God's word and it encourages me, where is the hope? Because that's one thing is that God's, God's word does this. Our experience is summed up in this process, that God reveals himself through his word. That revelation from his word, that leads to a change in perspective that brings conviction. 
that conviction begins to, to show us exactly how far we are from the standard, how far we are from who we should be. And that conviction leads to repentance. That repentance leads to restoration. And then, once things have been restored, God brings us back to the Word. In excitement and in hunger for the truth, with a, re- with a refreshed and renewed perspective and understanding, and after He has coddled us and He has loved us and He has shown us how great His love is for us, He reveals Himself to us again. Because if He was to show us everything that's wrong in our lives, all of the selfish ambition that we have, the heart, the, the heart that's bent towards war at the right moment, at the same moment, we would be crushed. So he gently takes us through this process. He reveals himself in his word, then he brings conviction. Because whom the Lord loves, he convicts. Hebrews chapter 10, and then he says, it leads us to repentance, and repentance leads to restoration. And the process of our life is to move through this cycle. He does all this for this reason. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, so that a person will not discover anything that will come after him. The idea here is that God does this to show us our own limitations. That He continues to show us His Word and give us hope and to give us understanding because He wants us to remember, I am God and you are not. And you've got to remember that. So He continues in verse 15. He says, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous person who who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked person who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing while not letting go of the other. For one who fears God comes out without both of them. Verse 19, wisdom strengthens a wise person more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is, a good, there is not a righteous person on earth who always does good and does not ever sin. So we read this and he, he starts to... Uh, Essentially, it boils down to this. He says the, the natural result of, of understanding these truths is that, okay, if I'm broken, I need wisdom, I need righteousness, okay? So our knee-jerk reaction is, I'm just going to be all righteous all the time. I'm going to put things in my life, I'm going to basically put myself in a plastic box, I'm going I'm to protect myself from all the bad things out there, and I'm just going to be as perfect as I possibly can. I'm going to be a, 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 a toy in a package, But then the opposite side is, he says, you can take this truth and say, you know what, forget that, what's the use, and just be foolish. He says, why should I I even care about this? But the idea is that we've got to remember that this is not about being perfect right now today. It's not about just throwing off caution to the wind and just just doing whatever we want. We've got to remember that all of this is, is so that we can know God. We have good days and we have bad days so that we can know the master. He doesn't do these things because he wants to control us. He does this because he wants a relationship with us. See, the idea is that, is that we think of this as God just picking us apart. Like, God, can you just like leave me alone for a minute? The reality is that he knows the only thing that's going to fulfill us is a deep abiding relationship with him. And so he draws us into this. And the natural human response is I can either run over here to this side and be perfect, which leads to eventually a nervous breakdown. 
Or I can run over here to this side and just not care at all because I've been saved by grace. Woo, I'm going to do whatever I want. Both of these things are foolishness. Verse 21, he says, Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, so that you do not hear your servant cursing you. For you know that even you have cursed others many times as well. This idea of living in the middle, that uh, he says, don't take seriously all the words which are spoken to you. This is, again, the heart that's at war that we talked about. The idea that you don't, you're not patient, you're not waiting to understand, you're listening to respond. He says, don't take seriously all the words. The idea still here is that God is trying to reveal himself to us and we are so arrogant and proud that we don't, we don't understand that we're getting in our own way. Because he says in verse 22, he says, don't you remember that you have also cursed others? The idea that you are not perfect, you haven't, you haven't arrived. But look at these last verses in 22, 23 through, 25, through 26. He says, I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise. But wisdom was far from me, what has been in remote and very mysterious. Um, what, what has been, sorry, is remote and very mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know and to investigate and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of foolishness and the foolishness of insanity, I discovered as more bitter, more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but be the sinner, but the sinner will be captured by her. Think about this. Think about where Solomon is. You, you see him at the, the sunset of his life, and he started out well. We have seen some of his observations about the world. We've seen his, his teaching in, um, how, through human relationships. But he finds himself, I think, distracted. He started out in, uh, in 1 Kings whenever he uh, receives the crown and receives the promise from God. God tells him this. He, it says this in 1 Kings uh, chapter 11, 1-6. through 6. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations of which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. They will certainly turn your heart away to follow their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who, who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned uh, his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow the other gods, uh, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his father David had been. For Solomon became a follower of Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and of Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully, and his father David, as his father David had done. Go back and look at this here in in Ecclesiastes. He says, I tested wisdom and I said, I'm going to be wise. He dedicated himself to, to this idea that, well, okay, well, I'm going to ask for wisdom. And along the way, he began to fall in love with a gift and not the giver. God makes him wise and he begins to, to succeed. He begins to excel. And he thinks, wow, you know what? This is kind of nice. This is really good. And then he begins to put his faith in the gift and not the giver. And this is him in the, at the sunset of his life seeing, wow, hold on a second. This isn't it. Verse 25, I directed my mind to know it and to investigate and to seek wisdom and an explanation to know the evil of foolishness and the foolishness of insanity. And what did he discover? 
Verse 26, And I discovered as more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. The idea here, he's not talking about, he's not saying that women are dangerous and women are evil. He's saying, God warned me about this. That I chased all of this other stuff and I made my faith an intellectual exercise. That it became this idea in my head, this lofty theology and philosophy that, that, that I am smart enough, I can figure this out, I don't need all this, all this heart work. As long as I understand doctrine, I'm good. And Satan stole his life through his own self-righteousness. Man, how empty. But look at the end. He says that the one thing, though, one who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. He's acknowledging here, there's a lot of scholars who, uh, who talk about this being one of the seminal passages of, of him acknowledging that he's messed up and him coming back to, to, to God and saying, I've missed it. I have all this stuff to show, show for my life, but I've, I've um, left that one thing. I've left the good name for this precious oil. I've laid aside my good name, the, the, the inheritance that I got from my father, the Shema Lave, this listening heart. I've laid that aside for all of this crap. That's what he's saying. Man, what is it like to, to live our whole lives and never experience chasing Jesus and just accumulate a bunch of stuff? A house that someone else will live in one day. Clothes that will end up in a landfill. A car that someone else will drive and eventually will be crushed into a cube and then melted down. Is that the inheritance of a child of God? And the answer is no. The answer is absolutely not. So the last couple of verses here. He, verse 27, he says, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, by adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made people upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's break this apart here. So the verse, first part in verse 27, he says, um, he says, Behold, I have discovered this. By adding one thing to another to find explanation, which I'm still, he's still looking, he's still trying to find. He, says, he uses this language about, I've found one man in a thousand and I can't find a woman. What he's talking about is he said, I, I have looked all over the place and I have not found one person that has done this right. Not one man, this, this, uh, he's using poetic language here by saying, I found one man in a thousand. And then he goes on the other side, he said, I haven't found a single woman. He's not saying that women are terrible. What he's saying is that, is that no one, when he says man here in, uh, in verse 29, in some tra translations, he's talking about general people. He's talking about mankind. He says, I've surveyed everything. Going back to the language where he says, who is going to make the crooked thing straight? No one is able to. He's speaking about Jesus, about there, there's a problem here, and no one can fix it. No one can live according to the standard. He says, I have found only this one thing, that God has made us to be upright. God has made human beings to dwell with Him and to be righteous. But they have sought out many schemes. We are creative, wicked creatures. The idea here is this. In this passage of Scripture, there's a lot to... Uh, Lots to talk about. There's a lot to, to chew on. But I want to encourage you in, in, in this truth. 
in the good days and the bad days, you're in one of these two categories right now. Either you are doing great, everyone's healthy, everything is good, you've got enough money in your bank account, you feel pretty safe. The day's coming when this is going to happen. And if you're here, when everyone's not healthy, when everyone's not safe, and you're not sure about what's going to happen next, I want you to remember that these days are coming. We cannot always be looking in one direction or the other, pining away for what's coming at the expense of where we are. God has something to say to you and to lead your family, and it's not just about trying to get to, get to one or the other. Right? We, we have this mindset that we just kind of need just to endure the bad days so that we can get to the good days. And when we get to the good days, we're nervous about going back to the bad days, so we freak out, but then we end up back here and we can't help ourselves. I don't want you to think about your life and your family from the perspective of we, we can only chase God in the good days and the hard days are throwaways. By the same token, you can't say that, that godliness is next to poverty and, uh, and terrible, terrible seasons and reject the good days. We've got to live in the present. And we do that by being people of the Word. Because here's the reality. Is that as you make a conscious decision about the direction of your family, you can either choose to reject this right here. And you can avoid all of this by just simply Avoiding the Word. Because without the Word, there can't be conviction, right? And if there's no conviction, then we don't have to worry about changing any things. And you know what? We don't really need this because I think we're good. You have, the only way that you're going to be able to see benefit in both the good and the bad days is if you are people of the Word. If you are a strong woman of the Word. If you are a strong Man of the Word. I had lunch with a with a, a friend, old friend of mine, who's an elder at a church here in the metro, and he's he's well plugged into his church. And um, I see this now on almost a daily basis, where church leaders, pastors, are avoiding hard topics in Scripture, uh, and they are chasing after. Um, themed messages that are fun, that have some sort of a cultural draw. Um, we're going to use modern day culture to try to teach biblical truth. And it's absurd. Absolutely absurd. And the whole lunch that I had with this, this buddy of mine, he was, he was lamenting about how his church has fallen away from a biblical perspective. And that his pastor has bought into uh, social issues and trying to be, uh, essentially they had put up a, they put up a pop-up next to their children's ministry during the centennial of the race massacre, and, and the takeaway was you need to pray away your white privilege. Now, I was telling Lindsay this to th this week. I have to, I, I gotta be honest with you. We are not just coming into a generation that is gonna be throwing away the truth. We are in it right now. And mark my words, 
that hell is coming for us. And if you are not rooted in the Word, if your family is not rooted in the Word, you are going to be swept away. History has taught us this. I I was reading a, a, a book this week, and the author said that in the 200 and some odd years that America has been a nation, we are finally catching up to the rest of the church. For 2,000 years it's been this way. And I'm telling you with the strongest language possible that if you try to build your family and you neglect the word, you will fail. You are going to crumble. You are going to not know how to make decisions. You are not going to know how to process the issues that come around you. You're not going to know how to take care of your family, your children, and your loved ones. And you will be afraid. The reason why I am so set on this is because this is now, I'm two months in to this understanding. And it has been confirmed over and over again. We have to be people of the Word. Serious Bible scholars. Every single one of you has the capacity to do this. Every single one. I don't care what people have told you. I don't care what you think about um, your capacity to be able to understand God's Word, to be able to, to dive in. I don't care because that's not what God's Word says. The Holy Spirit has told us that He will be the teacher. And if we neglect this, we do so at our own peril. So be people of the Word. Your good days and your bad days are just a label. The reality is that God has something to teach you and to reveal Himself to you in both. And it takes a mature believer to acknowledge that and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to do what your word says no matter how good it makes me feel. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.